Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Alex, listen to me. And when you get there, grab the first steamer you can and get to your father in San Francisco. But you must leave here now. I can't. Why? There's the house and Papa's papers. Forget your father's papers. He can do without them. There's no time for the house. If you don't leave here now, these roads will be impossible to drive on. My puppies. Baby, forget your puppies. I can't forget my puppies. You have to forget them. Soldier! They bombed Pearl Harbor! Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. Ah, uh, here we are. The year is 1966. That's 55 years ago. I, I literally cannot do math, so I'll take your... You could have said tw- 10 years ago, I would have been like, yeah, all right, sure. It, it's 1966. Topping the... Re- <laughs> oh, man. What a lame box office smash this year. Hawaii. The biggest movie of the year was Hawaii. The James Michener adaptation. I don't even know that one. And then after that's the Bible. <laughs> I am so dreading when we have to do, like, a Bible episode. Yeah, or any of these, like, huge cast epics that aren't very good but were weirdly popular just because they were something to see. The Marvel movies of their time? Yeah. Number three, we have Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. (laughs) Who likes that movie? That's a good movie. That makes sense, though. That makes sense because that was a smash play. Yeah, but it's not a real visual movie. I mean, Haskell Wexler made it more visual than it might have otherwise been, but it's a play. You can't say that name after the editing experience we both had with that podcast. <laughs> now nah, I want to remind myself of the good times with Haskell Wexler. True. Uh, number four, The Sand Pebbles, Steve McQueen and the Navy. Number five, A Man for All Seasons. Uh, number six, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Number seven, Grand Prix. Number eight, The Professionals. Number nine, Alfie. And 10 is Georgie Girl. So sneaking in at the bottom there, we're firmly in the uh, swinging London era, and Americans wanted to get a piece of that. I'm surprised Alfie's not higher. Yeah. I mean, everything's between 16 million and 8 million. So there's not a huge range of, uh, there's no like runaway hit this year. I mean, this seems to be a year of war and escapism. We've actually done a lot of great movies on Cinema 60 from 1966 already. Seconds, Blow Up, Young Torless, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Modesty Blaze, Yesterday Girl, Who Are You, Polly Magoo, Fahrenheit 451, Come Drink With Me, all all sorts. This uh, Kiss, Mary Kill, we're going to do our... uh, Did you prepare your top 10 of 1966, Jenna? Because at the end of this episode, I mean, you kind of just listed half of them. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing that these titles more than once will get them to pay attention and take notice and actually go out and watch them. Uh, This year does not hold. This year is is a year for you, though. And I'm looking at my favorites like, you know, I love seconds. I love. And if you want to hear us talk about seconds, you can go to the Faust episode of Cinema 60 seconds blew my mind when i watched seconds literally a second after i had watched it i was like do i have enough time to rewatch this movie right now which is something that i very rarely 
very rarely feel for anything, especially not in a theater setting. So seconds, big time. There was a movie we watched for this episode where that happened to me, and it doesn't happen that often. Ooh. But you'll have to wait and find out what it was. Yeah, we also got uh, Torn Curtain, their Hitchcock movie. A Man and a Woman was a big French hit in the States. Chelsea Girls, the Warhol film. The Endless Summer, the surfing documentary. Woody Allen's first film, What's Up, Tiger Lily? One Million Years B.C. Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And uh, for all you Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans, Manos, The Hands of Fate, came out in 1966. That's Manos, The Hands of Fate. They say that in the episode a lot. <laughs> That's the joke. That's the ongoing joke. Never mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of what... I mean, I love King of Hearts is a really great movie that came out in 66. Kathy, come home. Are we doing this now? I don't know. You sound like you wanted to. We don't I don't have know. To. I, I just thought we could save it for the end of the episode. All right, we'll save it. Okay. It's time, time to play Kiss, Mary Kill with the films of 1966. That's where we each pick a film that we want to try out from a particular year, or a movie that we love from that particular year, and a movie we hate from that particular year. And then we talk about them. Tonight, we're starting with Jenna's Kiss pick. What movie from 1966 did you really want to give a taste? <laughs> A movie that's about somebody else who wants to <laughs> get a little taste. Once Before I Die. My one wish was before the sun slips me on the hill. Let me love her. Let me feel her touch. Let me know she's mine. This is directed by John Derrick, and it stars Ursula Andres, our girl, shout out, mm -hmm. who was married to John Derrick and then got divorced, I think, after this, I think this movie kind of ruined their marriage. Maybe not this movie, but like, it didn't help. <laughs> but the description of this film sounded so bizarre that I just, I needed to see it. This is a bizarre film. I was actually looking up Ursula Andress's lovers because, you know, a woman like that, she had to have had lots of lovers. And uh, it looked to me like she was messing around with Jean-Paul Belmondo, you know, well before this movie was even made. She was married to John Derrick, but having a fling with Jean-Paul, so. Would you have a fling with Jean-Paul? Like, I think about that a lot because he's very charming, but I'm not sure that I would go for it but maybe i would i'll bet he's kind of a clown but he doesn't take things very seriously yeah and i think that would be what would do it in the end because he doesn't really looks wise he doesn't really do it for me i would date him before i dated jerry lewis <laughs> why'd you have to go to jerry lewis because <laughs> there's another clown who who i would never want to date <laughs> no ursula andrus on the other hand oh well, come on uh, we we all. <laughs> I would thought you would go to John Claude Brialli though. Oh yeah, well. Brialli, I'm that Brialli. Call me. <laughs> also, yeah, Ursula Andress. Come on, she can she can call me too. 
I kind of love her. I didn't expect to love her the way that I do. And yet she always charms me, except in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she's definitely good for some laughs in this movie, but she's not anywhere approaching good in it. Well, the plot of this film, I won't bury the lead here. The reason I wanted to watch this, right, was because I found out that this was a movie about a young soldier who wants to have sex before he dies. Like, that was (laughs) the only description that I had seen. And I thought, well, this sounds terrible. (laughs) So, I mean, the movie is named after that plot point, but that soldier doesn't have much of a role in this film. Like, it's kind of an excuse for Ursula to get uh, sexy right in the middle of a battlefield. But that's about it. But this movie is definitely not even rated. Like, I want to say this is like a PG-13 except for violence. Yeah. No, the sex is not graphic at all, but There's it does no have... Sex. There's no <laughs> I mean, so, okay, so the, the plot of this film is that it's just before the attack on Pearl Harbor, but they're in the Philippines. Americans are in the Philippines, and there's, like, a horse polo game happening when a Japanese plane just, like, flies overhead and shoots the entire game up, and everyone's just, like, horses and people are all writhing and bleeding on the field, And there's this, like, very immediately we get this, like, artsy shot of, I think it's Ursula Andres, like, a woman tossing her hair and then freezing, and it's overlaid over the action. So it's immediately, like, you're like, this movie is a 60s movie. (laughs) Yeah, everything horrible that happens in this film, there's a freeze frame of Ursula Andres with some frozen expression of horror on her face, superimposed with the horrible thing that's happening. Right. So this Major Bailey, who's played by John Derrick, the director, starring himself here, which is funny because you think, ah, the main character, and then in like 15 minutes, you're like, hmm, maybe not. But he has this girlfriend who is Ursula Andres, who's named Alex. I don't know what... Now, Ursula Andres is German. In this movie, I have no idea. Or Swiss. It, it, but does anyone say that? Does anyone say she's Swiss? Does that ever come out? Or are we just meant to presume that because she sounds insane? (laughs) (laughs) I think of German as her first language, but I think she's supposed to be French in this, but she definitely has some German dialogue. I think she's just supposed to be whatever Ursula Andress is in this movie, just a bunch of different stuff that's not American. I thought that she was playing French accent-wise because it didn't sound like her normal accent, but... Whatever she's doing in this, her voice is just so weird. Like, I'm not too sure what's happening. Like, there's this, the first, her our introduction to her besides, you know, not getting shot in this plane attack is her boyfriend being like, you have to get out of Manila, like, immediately and, and go back to America right now because this, some shit's going to go down. And she's like, oh, I can't forget my puppies. Like, she has this, like, fake made up, like, non-accent of God knows what. I don't know. It's so bizarre. Anyhow, he dies. <laughs> Spoiler. I don't know. It Like, basically, what happens is that Ursula Andres ends up being the main character as we kind of follow her. She joins up with this company, and they're all rushing through. Like, everyone's trying to get out of the Philippines. I don't know where they're going at this point. They're all Filipino except for these Americans. And everyone's trying to leave. And... You're trying to get to Manila. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> To meet up with the rest of the army. Well, the Americans are. 
But then there's all these like civilians, you know, there's that big crush of civilian traffic, which is kind of a cool scene. Right. But I'm making this go way too long. But this movie is just so weird. Yeah. So she's following this whole army company going down and then John Derrick gets killed in like a freak accident. Right. (laughs) A hilarious accident. He's trying to grab a teddy bear for Alex off uh, the top of some pile, and he's got some grenades strapped to his belt, and he oh, uh, when accidentally gets pulled off, and he blows himself up. <laughs> it's so amazing. And, like, right in front of her, and she doesn't say anything or care. I mean, like, she cares. She cares. <laughs> <laughs> but she doesn't get upset. She never gets upset about anything. She's just sort of, like, in shock throughout this entire film. And then there's also this Lieutenant Custer who is played by this Richard Jackal. Richard Jekyll. He's amazing. I don't... Who is he? He was in the green slime. Oh, God. He was the one who was too nice for the leading lady and gets blown up in the end. But he's so good in this movie. This movie is his movie, as far as I'm concerned. Lieutenant Custer, played by Richard Jekyll, and he loves war. And he's such... Like, I guarantee that Coppola saw... Richard Jekyll in this movie, and it inspired him to create both the Robert Duvall and the Marlon Brando characters in Apocalypse Now. Like, he's bald, he has a shaved head, and he just loves, he he gets a kick out of killing the enemy. (laughs) He definitely outshines Ursula Andress. I'm looking at his filmography, and I'm realizing I've seen, like, 40% of movies that he's been in, and yet this guy has never been on my radar. <laughs> and I, I hated him in this. I don't, I mean, like, I'm with you. I, I do think that he probably did inspire these other movies because he is, that's his whole character is like, he's just wants to kill people. And then he does. And then everyone's like, oh, no, you didn't. You didn't kill those people. And he's like, did I not? And he slams a dead body on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then eventually we get to this one soldier, this like, 22 year old who's i don't even does he even have a name that's another one i don't know who these this actor was he like pulls ursula andres aside and he's like uh you know i'm a virgin and i'm gonna die and i've never even seen a naked lady (laughs) and she's like okay (laughs) well she thinks about it for a little bit she's still kind of in shock from all the horrors that she's witnessed but it doesn't take her long to decide that yeah i can do this for this guy (laughs) And it's the perfect scene, honestly, and it made me wish that it had been a bigger event in this film besides the fact that this movie is named after this because there's like an advancing tank happening. There's a whole battle happening and they're just both off sitting on a hill and he's sitting there literally just whining to her about how "Uh, when you you make love, you grow up and I'm not going to ever grow up. And she's like, I don't think it's that important. And he's like, it is to me. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah. And then she ends up being like capitulating and being like, I guess. And then it turns into freeze frame photography. This whole movie. So like in general, there's this weird push and pull happening here where half of this wants to be like a really artsy film about war where like anytime something gets intense there's a freeze frame or they go into like still photographs with sound effects happening it gets kind of 60s artsy but like it doesn't ever fully come together and not just because the plot's bizarre and all the characters are weird and even like that lieutenant custer like he has this bizarre like 
you know, he goes and kills a bunch of people and then he can't remember if it actually happened or not. And I guess this is meant to be like a commentary on war. But like you watching this and you're like, I just don't know. I don't follow <laughs> what's happening in this movie. It's just very confusing. I mean, it's based on a novel that's not known at all. But I have to believe that in the novel, Alex really is the main character and it's kind of a coming of age thing. She's probably supposed to be a lot younger than she is like she's probably supposed to be 18 or something but she's clearly like 25 plus i mean she starts out really talking like a baby like talking about her puppies and her daddy and you know this is like the horrors of war sort of turn her into an adult but like at the beginning she looks like an adult so that being the point of this movie doesn't seem to make any sense but that's sort of the arc of the film but you never really get to know her character at all She's there. She's in most of the scenes. She's got dialogue with all the characters, but the movie doesn't seem to care about her that much. Yeah, there's something very off about this movie. Because I'm with you. I do think that she was the main character in the sense that she's the only thread that ties anything together in this film. But I also just don't understand why she's even there. Why would she be a part of this? Like, I'm presuming that she's meant to sort of represent innocence and peace and love that gets corrupt like you're saying but i just don't with the ending like i don't did you like this movie i think you like this movie more than i did like i could kind of kill this movie i had a great time watching this movie it's so strange and it really doesn't know what to be but it's so watchable like at no point was i bored by it or you know i never wanted to stop watching it it just held me fascinated throughout. Here's how I explain what this movie is. John Derrick is a sleazeball. Like, after this movie, he went on to marry Bo Derrick and then make nothing but softcore porn films with her. I think he even actually made some hardcore pornography in the 70s, like with his name, you know, art porn. I wish I had done more research on John Derrick, but he's a terrible director who's just interested in sex. And I think he thought he had a property here where he could really exploit his wife, Ursula Andress, or soon-to-be ex-wife, Ursula Andress, for her sexiness and make this film a lot sexier than it ended up being. It's just this push and pull of it not knowing what it wants to be, but being so weird that I was compelled by it. It's worth a watch. I wouldn't kill it. I'm not sorry I watched it. But I also don't have much more to say about it other than if you want to see John Derrick direct a sort of real film, like, you know, a movie with production values and people who can act and some tense scenes and a lot of weirdness, check this out. Because you really don't want to watch anything he ever did after this. Bolero or Tarzan the Ape Man or Ghosts Do It. <laughs> I want to watch Ghosts <laughs> Do something It. like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah you know the thing that was kind of interesting to me about this is like I watched it I, I didn't know what to make of it and then when I went to sort of write my little letterboxed review immediately on my phone I was like I had to think about it because I can't totally dismiss it because it's kind of interesting in a way just for Lieutenant Custer, even though I just found him just so grating and cartoonish and bizarre. It is very like heart of darkness. And there was something that's kind of interesting to me about having a movie that's not about a noble war. It's like a war of opportunity. And that I thought was kind of interesting 
for a war movie not from like 68 or 69 that like this was really kind of about a bunch of people either like just mistakenly falling into death or having nothing to live for or being just straight up serial killers like there's no good soldiers in this even though they make it clear that they all hate the Japanese I mean it gets racist which you expect from these soldiers but like the movie feels kind of racist so there's like that kind of weird middle tone of that but I don't know. I I found it interesting that even if this was all just a vehicle to get his wife naked, which I think he did and it didn't make the movie, but it made Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) Even if that was just the entire excuse to even have a character who's just like, all I want to do is have sex before I die. And then he dies. (laughs) You know, what a pathetic sad life i mean like i guess you're meant to feel like oh he died a man or whatever but it's just bizarre it's just weird this whole movie is weird so i can't hate it because it's just so strange but it's not good (laughs) no it's in danny peary's guide for the film fanatic so i've always been aware of it and i think it deserves to be in there it's worth a watch if you want to see Ursula Andress act like a sexy baby, this is the movie for you. And then you want to see some like really explicit wartime gore. This is pretty bloody, this movie. Yeah, if you want to see horses with large gaping bullet wounds, watch this movie. <laughs> At least it looked like that was makeup. I've definitely seen other movies where... Actually, I, there was this one Hungarian movie I saw where I'm like, I'm positive that they shot a horse on screen. It was really disturbing. But speaking of Hungarian movies. I was just going to make that segue. (laughs) (laughs) My kiss pick for 1966 was Miklos Jancho's The Roundup. He's a Hungarian director that is a big deal in the art cinema scene. And somebody I've considered a huge gap in my uh, film education. I've been itching to have a reason to watch one of his films because the Roundup or the Red and the White or Red Psalm, like they're all, these are the kind of movies that you see stills of in film history books. And he's a extremely well-respected world cinema auteur and uh, I don't know I guess I was a little intimidated by how slow and arty his movies seemed but mostly like it's been a a matter of availability it hasn't been that easy to get my hands on things of his to watch and now that anything that's ever been made is available somehow it was the perfect time for me to dive in head first into Miklos Jancho and I thought it was great i was really surprised at how engaging this movie was. It's about Hungary, a uh, hundred years before the film was made, so the 1860s, and it's about the authorities rounding up all sorts of criminals and putting them in this strange kind of open prison called the Earthworks in the middle of these Hungarian plains. And basically they're trying to root out everyone who was involved in 
the big rebellion from 20 years before, the 1848 rebellion led by Sandra Rosa was a shameful occurrence for these Austro-Hungarian aristocrats. So the men in charge really just want to punish everyone who was involved in this big rebellion. So they're still like 20 years later trying to track down everyone involved. And the movie is really just a bunch of mind games where the soldiers are trying to get the prisoners to inform on each other and root out all the rebels under the guise of trying to crack down on crime in general. Really, their ultimate goal is just to execute everyone involved in the rebellion. And so it's a strange movie in that there are a lot of characters and nobody has a whole lot of screen time. There's this one guy who, you know, you follow for a good chunk of the movie, Janos. You know, he's just a murderer. He's a farmer who has killed six people in order to like get the largest farm and get rid of his competition like he's just sort of a cutthroat bad guy and i like that he wears the black sheep coat right i mean a lot of these guys have these big hungarian mustaches and they're all pretty interchangeable it's hard to tell one person from another but this guy he's got this really distinctive cap that's black so you know that he's the bad guy but you realize that the authorities are not really interested in this guy they're like okay if you can tell me people who are involved in the rebellion, people who have killed more people than you have. You've killed six people. If you can find me somebody who has killed seven people, then we'll let you go. So because his murders were just self-serving, like he's got no morals, he just wants to survive. They're using him to root out all of these political prisoners, these people with conscience, with higher causes, who are actually like more of a thorn in the side of the authorities. So yeah, it's just a series of mind games where the prison guards are setting the prisoners against each other to try and find all the rebels. And it's surprisingly engaging. Before I go on about the interesting techniques in this film, what, what did you think of it? <laughs> I was so worried that this was going to be the type of movie that I don't like. And it's funny because it, it sort of is. And what I mean by the type of movie I don't like is like... As many foreign films as I have watched and loved and adored much more than even American cinema, I always still get this like pit for like that one depressing, boring foreign film that is just like about misery and that is it. And it's just about look at how we suffer, you know, like I hate those foreign. I just they're just so bland. I find them like dehumanizing. It's a certain style that tricks people into thinking that this is important in art without actually making any effort for character. And, and it just kills it for me. But this movie, it kind of is that. Like, you know, as you said, all these characters are interchangeable. There really isn't, you know, you, you have like a couple of people that you get some vague background for, but they're all kind of like symbols or their stand-ins or their stereotypes. But this movie is just, it's really clever. <laughs> and so it won me yeah. over with that. It ends up being like much more, it's a political movie. Like it's actually a political movie. And it's like, you know, oh, it turns out political oppression and psychological torture is a pretty universal <laughs> thing that we can all kind of understand and get into as far as just understanding what's, what's happening. Um, and so when it becomes very clear that this is actually not so much a movie about this one really specific time in Austria-Hungarian relations, and you realize that this is actually, I mean, it, it is likely about the modern day, 
for 66 but it's also like a very universal message about human psychology and, and about uh, nihilism <laughs> and just how easily we're all seduced by order it's basically walking people to their death by following rules and that in itself is such a powerful statement that I ended up loving this. The ending of this movie really won me over. I don't even want to spoil it, even though I'm presuming that the vast majority of people, even who are at the point of listening to this podcast, like will likely not watch this movie. <laughs> no, gotta watch it. You should, yeah. I'm with you. From what I understand, this is one of the easier to watch of Yancho's films. So start there. I mean, I can't say from experience because it's the only one I've seen, but this was surprisingly easy to watch for a movie about psychological torture. But I mean, that's what I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting such a clever screenplay where it really like plays each of these characters that you never get to know particularly well. You just need to know what's useful to know about them. And you know, they're each motivated by different things. And the soldiers have sort of figured out how to get at what motivates each of these prisoners and use them for their own purposes. And it's compelling. This is the movie where as soon as it was over, I wanted to watch it again because I didn't expect to have to follow the plot so closely. I thought, you know, Yancho is known for you know his long takes and moving camera. This one, not so much. I mean, there are a lot of beautiful moving camera shots, but the takes aren't as long as I understand he starts to do almost immediately after this film, but it's a beautiful movie to look at. It's all like it's set on these empty planes where, you know, it's hopeless for these people to think they can escape because there's nowhere to run. There's nothing to hide behind. It's just this vast plane and this earthworks, this prison, this sort of semi-open prison is like this stark white and it's a black and white film and there's so many beautiful compositions that just use the black against the white that... I want to watch it again just to look at the film again. And now that I understand what it's trying to do to just sort of get the intricacies of the plot mechanisms even, it's a major film. And I'm sorry I waited this long to finally see it. Yeah, I mean, at least this movie, it has a reason to keep things minimalist, both in its plot and visually. The thing that I found more striking than the visuals, though, was how it does not ever try to create any sort of false sense of camaraderie between the prisoners. In fact, the people that end up trying to create some and sow some sort of loyalty between each other as like us versus them end up just dying quicker, which is, I think, a really interesting dynamic about a lot of these prison camps. Like it's like a messed up sentence to say, but like, you know, it's the type of thing that a lot of Holocaust movies will not address. So it was interesting to see it happening in this. And like, there's this one really striking scene of a woman who they make strip completely naked. And then they set up all of these guards in two parallel lines and they make her run in between in front of all of the prisoners and with the prisoners that they are pretty sure know who she is. And of course, nobody wants to rat each other out explicitly. So they put them all in this high tower to watch what's happening to her where she's just being tortured. They are whipping her as she runs through this line. And so it's this really like jarring and creepy scene. And then what ends up happening is that the prisoner who they keep accusing of being, uh, I, don't, I don't remember what they Veselka. They're trying to root out Veselka, who's one of the higher-ups, one of the leaders of the rebellion. And they find out that this woman is, uh, 
I think it's Janos who sort of rats her out as someone that Veselka has been seeing. So they start to torture her just so Veselka will reveal himself. But I don't know that it's clear. And this is also to the credit of the film. It's not clear if it ever really is the person that they accuse them of. Because this Veselka is meant to have been somebody who killed an officer and then took his place. And then there's a whole plot line about having to prove that you're not Veselka in order to not get killed. It wasn't clear to me, at least on one watch, if this really was him. But he clearly did have a relationship with this woman and ends up jumping off of this tower just out of guilt and out of pain for seeing her being tortured to death, which she does end up dying. And once he starts to go, all of these other, you know, everyone else who's his comrades and friends start to jump off too. And it becomes this awful, horrendous mass suicide situation where, again, the only people that had any sort of loyalty that they were trying to maintain, they couldn't in this scenario. It's not possible to keep your dignity and be a human being while you're stuck in this prison camp. And I think that that was just like a really powerful and interesting thing that you don't see very often on film. And without being like super gory, I mean, like it's depressing and it's terrible to watch and it's brutal, but it never feels exploitative. Yeah, it's not gruesome or gory, but it's mental torture. It's just mental games that are really destroying these people's lives. It's powerful and and a little hard to watch for that reason. And that ending, man, the ending is really good. (laughs) Yeah, just uh, watch it for the ending. Know that all the twists and turns that this movie takes, the biggest of all comes at the end. And it's like, it's laugh out loud funny in that it makes you want to (laughs) die. Like, it's not a funny ending. That's exactly what I want from a movie. Exactly. (laughs) That's the perfect Bart movie. So let's move on to the movies that we decided we wanted to marry from 1966. Well, I was looking at all of the movies in 1966 that I really enjoy. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for something like light and fluffy that just makes me really happy. And I'm not going to overthink it. (laughs) (laughs) And that movie is How to Steal a Million. Directed by William Wyler and starring Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. Eli Wallach, who I have to admit the first time I watched this, I didn't even notice him. (laughs) (laughs) He's not doing his Eli Wallach thing in this movie. No, but it was fun to watch this now and have like an understanding of him outside of the good, the bad and the ugly. I love that you chose this as your Mary pick because it was one of my selections for movies I would be willing to kill from 1966. And I'm dying to know why that is. This movie is light and fluffy, and it makes me miserable. How? Wait, let me give the plot. (laughs) I have to give the plot of this movie just so people understand. This movie is about Audrey Hepburn, who is named uh, Nicole Bonet, and her father, Charles. They're very rich, and they live in France, and her father is an art forger, and he has been, you know, painting like Monet's and and he doesn't sell them, but he sort of just like everyone knows that he has this like amazing art collection. And it's something that is apparently inherited down from 
generation to generation. His father used to do it and he does it. And Nicole is not happy about it. She's not thrilled about it, but she sort of lets it go because she figures eh, he likes it. So be it. So the father ends up, he he has some stuff that ends up in auction and Nicole's trying to tell him like, you can't do this anymore. You're going to get caught. There's all of this new technology and, and they'll figure out how this is a fake. And even though he makes all of these, he goes and gets the dirt from the right area of France in order to scatter on his paintings. And, you know, he he's a good forager, but, you know, she's just worried he's going to get caught and she doesn't want him to go to jail. And then one night she hears somebody kind of, messing around downstairs and she finds that there's a man in a suit that has broken into her house and he's holding this one forged painting and she picks up an antique gun and points it at him and shoots him by mistake and him by the way of course being simon dermot who is peter o'toole my boyfriend (laughs) (laughs) post nose job post nose job that's their meet cute And so kind of from there on, basically what happens is that there's uh, all of these people keep coming to this house and they want to use all this art. And there's this one Cellini Venus statuette that the grandfather sculpted, I thought. And he says, okay, well, you want to put it in a museum. It's not going to be sold and fine. It feels good for people to admire it. Then it basically turns out that they have to insure it. The plot point being that there's no way to forge the statue's People are going to know because of forensics. So they're terrified now that they're going to be found out as a fake, which is going to ruin the family's name and yada, yada, yada. So Audrey Hepburn now thinking that Simon is just a burglar (laughs) because that's how she met him. She says, I need you to steal something for me. And so they hatch this plan to steal this Cellini Venus from the museum in order to she says to get the insurance money, but really, of course, the reason is because it's forged. And that's it. And so then there's it becomes a caper movie, and it's the two of them in like a love-hate relationship that eventually turns to love, of course, when they're locked in a closet in a museum for eight hours. And there's a very dumb and yet clever heist that they pull off, and I just, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy everything about this. The amazing Givenchy costumes for Audrey Hepburn that she's in. She's constantly, she's just in the coolest outfits throughout this entire movie. The, even the movie comments on it. A lot of fur helmets. A lot of wonderful colors. Chartreuse suits. <laughs> Driving glasses. This movie is sort of everything that I superficially love about the 1960s which is like amazing outfits, small cars, bright pops of color, and hot guys stealing artwork. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun. And, and I think this entire movie just hinges on the fact that you want to either bone Audrey Hepburn or Peter O'Toole. And if you don't, all you're left with is Eli Wallach. And then, you know, it gets barren. So, And I know you hate Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, I guess you're describing me. <laughs> I don't like Audrey Hepburn very much. And when she's trying to be an authentic human being, she's completely unconvincing. So, you know, I I think I've said this before, but in something like Breakfast at Tiffany's or My Fair Lady, where she's pretending to be something she's not, she's perfect. But in a movie where she's supposed to seem like an actual human being that you're supposed to be interested in and care about, 
she's <laughs> she's just such a phony. And Peter O'Toole isn't much better. He's sort of superficially charming, but you don't get anything about his character. Like, you don't know who he is. Like, it's supposed to be setting up some sort of, like, charade-type mystery there. Like, he's just supposed to be, like, the Cary Grant-type mystery man where you just want to know what his story is because you never really know until the end. But there's nothing mysterious about him. He's just He just looks like a playboy. He's just this pretty boy who is running around entering Audrey Hepburn's home in the middle of the night and chipping paint off a fake painting. And to be honest, this is the second time I've seen this movie. The first time I saw it was a couple decades ago, probably. And I remember disliking it quite a bit. But watching it again, the first half of this movie, I really didn't mind that much. The whole setup and the whole world of art forgers and this idea of somebody who's not trying to profit from it, but is just sort of trying to lead this lifestyle, be this respected, aristocratic, cultured person in Paris. is I, I was kind of interested in that. But then once it turns into a heist movie, I in general, I don't like heist movies at all. I think they're boring. It's like either it's going to work or it's not, and you're just waiting to see if it does or doesn't. But this one is particularly grueling because you've got two really superficially charming people who are not engaging at all, just hatching this romance out of nothing because they're stuck in a closet for a while because that's part of their heist plan. Yeah, the second half of this movie, which is pretty much entirely the heist, I can't wait for it to be over. It's William Wyler, so it's a really, like, nice-looking movie, like, really careful work with the production design and... And like, you know, the business with the extras, like everything is really carefully thought out. It's really tightly made, you know, expensive piece of junk. Like there's nothing to it. I'm shaking my head at you. It's totally empty. I did like her tiny car, though. Her tiny car is iconic. I I was waiting for the heist this time watching this. I was like, let's get to that heist part. That's exactly what I, I, everything that you hate about this is exactly what I like about it. I don't have, like, I'm totally fine with their superficial relationship because we know a lot about her. We get a ton about her. And then for him, she doesn't know who he is. And then the only reason why she even asks him to do something crazy is because she thinks, oh, he's just a criminal. And so she already is stereotyping who she thinks he is. And then he's trying to live up to what she's putting on him. So now you have a woman who's already hiding the secret that she's part of this art forging family. And then you have Peter O'Toole who's hiding a secret is that he knows. (laughs) And yet he's sort of intrigued, I think, by this degree of whimsy of like, oh, she thinks I'm like this bizarre, hardened criminal, even though I'm like Peter O'Toole. (laughs) Even though I'm like the floofiest dude. So he just sort of starts to just get into it. And it's kind of, it becomes this game of chicken that ends up actually happening to the point where like, he's not expecting her to even show up on the day that they're going to do it. So like that degree of uncertainty about the characters and that degree of holding back. And I guess that falseness to them uh, totally works for me in this film And then they're just fun together. I don't know. And then I liked, I mean, Peter O'Toole pulls off a heist on, what is, this is like a big museum, the Lafayette Museum. (laughs) I didn't think it was a real museum, but maybe it is. Well, he pulls off this heist on this like big national museum that's like right by the palace of whoever the heck in France. 
and he pulls it off with like a children's toy and magnets. <laughs> and I love that. It's just so dumb. And it's, but it's like, it's dumb. And yet you're watching this and you're like, this conceivably probably could have happened. <laughs> because the way that they they kind of go through how the security is set up and you're like no this actually like does make a degree of sense and he uses like a lot of human psychology actually to get this to push through and when it actually does happen even he's shocked he's like i didn't think this was gonna work but i figured we may as well try because they at least the only thing he really planned was how to hide the entire night and for him he doesn't care like if we don't steal this thing, that's just as good for him. So I think it totally works. It's like just this flippant heist film. And I just kind of love that about it. It's never serious. And even when it's being serious, it's dopey, but in a fun way, this movie's fun. It makes me laugh. Maybe with different stars, it would have worked for me, but not with these stars. It's just me, I guess. Everybody loves a heist movie except me. I just don't understand what it is about heist movies that don't click for me. I don't either because you love planning, over-planning things. (laughs) (laughs) In the whole psychological warfare of this, I guess, slight spoiler, I think you should watch this movie and it's fun and it's silly and and easy watch. So I, I would suggest it, but I do appreciate that What this comes down to is just that if you like walk in somewhere with purpose, you can pull one over on anyone on top of the idea that everyone hates technology. And if you make them think that technology is acting up, they will just be like, fuck this and (laughs) walk away. (laughs) And I think that that in itself is actually just like a genius. I would love to see a version of this heist happening in the current day and see if they could figure out a smart way to do it. Because now, of course, we have CCTV and we have way more complex security as far as just technology goes. Whereas this one, you know, like the big security that's around this statue is like a bunch of blue lights. (laughs) That, you know, if you break the circuit, then the alarm goes off. But I'm not clever enough to come up with my own heist, but I would love to be. (laughs) Maybe that's it, too. I, I don't want things that don't belong to me. I don't want things. I just want to steal something. (laughs) I've never been... Just to prove that you're smarter than everybody else. Maybe. I've never actually, you know, uh, hold hold one, two fingers up. I don't know what the fuck. What do people do when they're swearing on something? I will swear that I've never stolen anything purposefully. (laughs) But if someone was like, hey, you want to like steal the Cellini Venus with Peter O'Toole? I'd be like, maybe. Why don't you like Peter O'Toole? Have we talked about this? Maybe because I've had to sit through uh, What's New Pussycat more than once. (laughs) But he's great in that. (laughs) I don't think there's much to him. He's a pretty boy. There's just not a whole lot of depth there. You know what movie I love him in? My Favorite Year. I think he's amazing in that. And that's about it. Oh, just wait till we get to Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Uh, He's cocky white dude. (sighs) What did you love, Bart? What did you want to marry? The movie that I chose to marry from 1966 is Death of a Bureaucrat. Directed by 
Tomas Gutierrez Alia. And this is our uh, first Cuban film on Cinema 60. That's part of why I chose this one, because I thought, hey, there's a nation we haven't been to yet. Although I guess we did briefly with Anya Varda, but that hardly counts. But this is a movie that I saw... I remember when I'm Cuba came out in the mid 90s, like this lost classic that nobody had ever seen before. And it was a big deal. And I saw it and I thought it was amazing. I had this sort of interest in oh, what, what else was happening in Cuba. And I think Death of a Bureaucrat was the next one I got my hands on. And uh, it couldn't have been more different. I'm not sure I knew when I sat down to watch it that it was sort of a slapstick satire. Um, bureaucracy, but you know, I went into it expecting this really serious movie about communism and uh, you know the plight of the people and how uh, the people can overcome any obstacle sort of thing. And this is sort of exactly the opposite of that. It's this really goofy, hilarious comedy. You might describe it as Kafka-esque in that this guy, I'm not even sure you ever get his name even, his uncle dies. He, his uncle is Uncle Paco. And he's, uh, you know, he's a model worker. He designed this machine that could mass produce these busts of Jose Marti, who is the revolutionary poet of Cuba, like, you know, a hero to everybody. And so um, Uncle Paco was this greatly admired member of the proletariat. And, you know, when he dies, he's actually killed by his own machine. He turns himself into a bust of uh, Jose Marti. And they decide, oh, he was, uh, you know, such a great worker for the cause. He should be buried with his worker's card. Well, it turns out that his widow, the hero's aunt, can't get Paco's pension without his worker's card. So they go to the pension office and, you know, the person who's helping them says, this has never happened before. Of course you need the worker's card to get the pension. This is crazy. And, you know, it goes around the office and everybody says, oh, yeah, you, you need the card. There's no way we can do this without the card. And that's just the very start of this whole ordeal that the nephew has to go through to get his aunt her pension. They have to you know, exhume the body, but they can't get the paperwork to exhume the body because it hasn't been two years and because it's, these bureaucrats are so officious, they just need everything to be done exactly the right way, and no one will try and help. You know, the whole point of communism is championing the people, but uh, it portrays the bureaucracy that's in place as, you know, the enemy of the people. They're, you know, not, they're sort of more caught up in the procedure and the rules. They don't care about what the people need. The movie is political in that you actually even see like death to the bureaucracy signs in the film. The, the nephew works in this art studio that produces political art for the government. And so you see like these death to the bureaucracy signs, but it's just this nightmare of this guy having to go to person after person, waiting in all these lines, have to sneak into government offices to get things stamped. And it's really funny. It's in, inspired by silent comedy for sure like there's this pie fight in the cemetery that's surprising like it's kind of subversive it, it really kind of makes you uncomfortable because there are all these people involved in this crazy violent sort of pie fight in the cemetery where people are trying to like bury their loved ones and it's a really <laughs> trenchant satire that also happens to be really funny it didn't 
pack quite the same punch this time through because I knew what I was in for. I think the surprise of it the first time I saw it was what really made me love it. But yeah, it's great. Well, this was my first time seeing this and I did not know what I was in for. And I was very pleasantly surprised to find out that this was like a mixture of Monty Python and the loved one. (laughs) (laughs) I really loved the opening. I was a little disappointed we didn't get more of it, quite frankly. But in the opening, when they're talking about the uncle, they show the machine that he made. And it's all of this stop animation with photographs. And it's really smartly done. It's really fun animation where he has this big giant machine that looks like something Terry Gilliam wishes he could have invented. And you sort of see him working this machine until he gets eventually sucked into it and then spit out as one of these (laughs) communist leader busts. And it's really clever. There's like a degree of fatigue that comes with a movie like this I don't know maybe it just caught me on a, like a weird day but like it's so clever it got to be exhausting <laughs> well it's a really stressful situation it is a little exhausting because nothing goes right for this guy yeah I mean like you know every time he goes into an office they're saying well you know we can't you know yeah he buried the card and they're well, like, well you have to exhume it well I need an exhuming permit there's so much red tape that he just goes and takes the body out. And then when he wants to put the body back in, he has to prove that he has the permit for exhuming the body. And then he has to go through it anyhow to (laughs) get the permit to then come and say that it has been exhumed. But then of course, once he does that, they say, well, then what are you trying to bury if you're trying to exhume something? And so it becomes this like loop of just total nonsense. The best part about that is just the further the film goes on, the more and more vultures start to circle. (laughs) his house (laughs) where he's keeping this dead body with his aunt who of course is just like totally in mourning and terrified and but she's being really good about keeping the body on ice right and it's you know it's completely absurdist he has these bizarre dreams too that feel very like Mm bunuel-esque it's really bizarre and a lot of it ends up just sort of coming down to as well this idea that if you just walk in somewhere with purpose then you know it doesn't matter (laughs) 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 one of the big turns for him is he like needs a signature and eventually he goes to somebody who's just like i'll just sign my name and he's like no you can't do that but then in the end it turns out he can (laughs) had he just like forged a signature to begin with it would have been fine you know so it was like this great little message about not only the pain of bureaucracy but just how it doesn't matter like in how corrupt people are anyhow and so i appreciated that There's definitely some really fun shots in this. I love that aerial shot when everyone's fighting. It kind of goes through all these different silent films, like you mentioned, where he's, you know, hanging off of the clock face on the side of a tower and everyone thinks he's trying to kill himself. He has to sneak back in and then he tries to sneak out after all the cops have arrived and then they're like pointing him out like, that's the guy trying to kill himself. And then the crowd goes to like attack him. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I appreciated that. There's also like a doctor that has this nervous tick and he keeps overanalyzing everything. You know, it's like these kind of very obvious jokes that you would expect from this sort of obvious type of satire but they're amusing. They're fun. And I think that like I might have enjoyed this a little bit better if I was watching more films from the period. And I think that actually you going from I Am Cuba to this probably was the best possible way to watch this movie. Because to come from it now, not having much context for Cuban film, 
I kind of felt like ah, I've seen this. <laughs> but like that's on me that's not the problem of the film well all the really obvious character types and jokes are also referential like it's all done in this winking way so it works on multiple levels like it's sort of an homage to this different era of film but at the same time it's a really crowd-pleasing film it was a huge hit in cuba and the cuban authorities thought it was great you know they were happy to have this movie that was critical of how the government bureaucracy works in the country. Like, you know, you'd never be able to get away with this in the USSR, I wouldn't think. But Cuba was like, yeah, you have a valid criticism of the way bureaucracy works, so great. But I guess that they refused to allow the film to get exported. Like, they really just didn't want any other country to see Cuba being critical of itself in the way that, that its government works. I mean, the U.S. especially, like, they really did not want this to get to the U.S., but Aaliyah eventually like figured out some way to, to smuggle it out. And Cuba was not happy with him. It's kind of like a G-rated criticism, though. You know what I mean? Like I think that there's like a lot that's subversive in how they treat death, and there's a lot of pretty clear, you know, like you said, they're, they're really making fun of a lot of types of propaganda, essentially, and making fun of this idea of the perfect worker and making fun of the idea of the perfect system. But at the end of the day, the criticism really just comes down to like, nobody's perfect. <laughs> so like, I kind of can see why the government didn't really mind about this movie. I don't like I didn't find it very cutting. But like, I don't know enough, quite frankly, about Cuban government at this time. I, I know, like, the basics, but I don't know enough about culture to say that this was particularly subversive. But it is interesting to watch. I mean, paper pushers are universal. There are yeah. bureaucrats everywhere. So I don't think there's no government that couldn't benefit from a little criticism in this direction because it's not so specifically directed at Cuban bureaucracy. It's just bureaucracy in general. That's the anime. It's uh, not a dangerous satire. But interestingly, this movie does have a connection to the movie that you chose as your you'd really like to kill this movie. It does? There's a similar gag, and I'm sure that it's just coincidence, but in Death of a Bureaucrat, the nephew works in this art studio, and they're creating all of this propaganda oh, right. that they don't really have a cause for. Like, the, you know, there's the joke about, like, we protest blank leaving it blank until they have something to protest and that same exact joke is in the swinger your kill pick for 1966 and it's much less sincere in the swinger than it is i felt like that was actually like a funny joke in death of a bureaucrat i like also they have that sexy proletariat woman <laughs> in the swinger it's just like this is a bad faith movie all around this is directed by George Sidney. It's starring Anne Margaret and, uh, this is another one. I don't know. I guess I chose all of these semi-fluffy, bizarre <laughs> sex movies this episode here because I also I heard the plot of this one, which was Anne-Margaret 
wants to be a writer and she wants to get published in a magazine called Girl Lore, which is essentially just a Playboy stand-in. And so she writes all of these racy stories and nobody believes that they're true. So she has to now live this lifestyle in order to prove to Rick Colby (laughs) (laughs) that she is indeed the woman that she says she is and, and that these stories are real and that he should publish them and make her a published author. And so as a general story, it sounds stupid, but fun. And then the first, oh man, the first five minutes of this movie are very fun. (laughs) (laughs) This has the most amazing theme song. And then it segues immediately into this montage of like the beautiful sights of LA. And it's like all strip shops and like fast food and tattoo shops. (laughs) And it's just porn (laughs) theaters. You know, it's like the sleaziest, crummiest parts of LA. And then, uh, and now the the wonderful halls of Girl Lure magazine where everyone's pinching asses and all these women are dressed in these really skimpy outfits and they're shooting like calendars or whatever. So, you know, it was like this this actually really fun opening. And Anne Margaret, I always like Anne Margaret because she's always like slightly unhinged. There's always something about her where I feel like she's just gonna go absolutely nuts. And I'm always just waiting for her to tip over the edge and she like does it all the time but she always looks perfect doing it and then no one ever acknowledges it everyone's just like that's what women do and you're like really (laughs) because she's really going extra here and so i that's what i wanted from this was just like a really dumb tashlin-esque kind of movie but instead i just got like freaking the lovins (laughs) or like riot on sunset strip those crummy movies that we watched for the LSD episode that was like just 60 year old men writing movies about hippies of what they think hippies are doing based on like a postcard they saw once. You know what I mean? Like it's just totally insincere pandering and also patronizing. And that's just 100% nothing. This movie is just dead. It's, it's a wasteland. It's just so cheap and lazy. That's the real problem with it. George Sidney is sort of a respectable director. Like, he's done some high-profile things. Like, he did both Bye Bye Birdie and Viva Las Vegas with Anne Margaret. So it's like, this is your star, George Sidney. Why don't you give her something to do? When she's dancing, she's great. That's what Anne Margaret should do. She should dance. (laughs) But she also should be playing a character who has something to do. And she's got nothing very interesting to do in this. Like she gets covered in paint and uh, used as a paintbrush. And Margaret is always watchable, but it's such a weak premise. Tony Franciosa is the leading man is a real bimbo, too. He's uh, just a you know block of wood. Nothing interesting about him. I was reading that the script for this was written in 10 days. <laughs> You can really tell. They had the flimsiest idea. Some people got together and said, okay, let's throw a few gags in and we're good. Roll cameras. You know, it's a movie about sex. Like it's supposed to be smutty and lurid and, you know, exploring the nasty side of human nature, but it's so tame, really. Like there's a lot of ogling women in skimpy clothing, but it doesn't even seem to care about that that much. Sex for this movie is just means like chasing a woman around a room until she says yes. Yeah, literally. <laughs> like that's as sexy as things get in this movie. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Like, the problem is that it's not only that Anne Margaret should have an excuse to dance. Like, it should make sense for why that's happening. Like, why would you write a movie where she's dancing where there's just no reason for her to be doing it? Like, she comes back. She lives in this hippie house with several people. And literally, she comes home and everyone's having a dance party. And then she's like, oh, I'm really busy. But let me, like, get in some quick dancing before... <laughs> Like it just I actually that's one of the two gags in the movie that I really liked when she just every time she enters the room where they're doing the they have the dance lesson she's like reading her book or you know she just sort of dances along as she's like crossing the room and it's it's fun I mean it's Anne Margaret not many people could get away with it but you did happen to bring up one of the things I liked about this movie I, that was a good gag in theory but they did not justify it and so like I just couldn't get into it <laughs> It was the same thing. She walks into another room and she sees this guy who's sitting there painting all these signs. Oh, what are you protesting now? Oh, I don't know. Something will come up. You know, it's like, screw you. <laughs> you know, it's like 1966. And then the most offensive part of this movie is the fact that there is a cop living in this hippie house. And he's like also a painter. And he's like, this is, I don't know, it's his, his passion is to paint stuff. But by day, he's like a sergeant or something, a lieutenant. And there's absolutely no reason for this cop to be living in a house with teenagers. He's like a middle-aged, 50-something-year-old cop. And the only reason he's there, number one, is that they think, well, it's funny. You wouldn't expect a cop living in a hippie house. But number two is so that they can then turn around and say lines like, thank you for bringing the vice squad around, Captain, you know, and it's just like, fuck you. <laughs> it just makes me so angry. It's just so patronizing. It's just so obnoxious. It's just saying that, like, you know, these kids are so dumb and useless that they need the cop to sit there and help them all the time. And just to have a teenager say, gee whiz, thank you, Mr. Officer. Like, that. that's like the whole point of this. The gag that they think they have, it doesn't exist. And then, yeah, and then the rest of this is just... And margaret being pulled around in paint. It reminded me there's an Elvis movie that does very similar hippie house nonsense that is also just as lazy. I think it's Easy Come, Easy Go, which might have been 66 or it's it's definitely late 60s. It's just crap. And I don't understand how they couldn't come up with anything because there's like fertile ground here. <laughs> in 10 days, I think I could have written like a slightly more interesting version of this script. Part of why they even come to her house and why she has to ride around and paint is that she's trying to prove that she's a free-spirited hippie chick. And, like, that's all they could come up with. And she's meant to be talking about, like, here's my orgy or whatever. And it's just her <laughs> in a bikini being pulled around on paint. And, like, that's it. That's all they could come up with. She doesn't do anything else. There's one scene where she pretends to be high. I don't know. That, that's it. That's it. That's all I have. Well, and then she pretends to be a stripper and a gambler and a prostitute. But you don't see any of that. And they could have just shown you that, <laughs> quite frankly, because there's plenty of good gags that she could have had within that without just being groped. And, you know, with, like, trying to, like, maintain some semblance of dignity as she degrades herself or whatever. But instead, we just get her being groped all the time. The only gag that actually I enjoyed, which doesn't say much for me, is the god-awful freak that owns Girl Lore magazine, this British guy, Sir Charles or whatever. He is, like, this total 
horn dog creep awful guy all the secretaries hate him and they hate dealing with him because they just know he's going to sit there and literally chase them around the desk and so he gets Anne margaret in his office and he closes the door and the light goes on outside like do not disturb and his whole office is tricked out in matt helm worthy sex pits <laughs> like there's a couch that when he presses a button the whole couch comes out from the wall it turns out it's a giant bed <laughs> And like all these like rare, rare alarms go off because he's gotten that far kind of thing. And then it gets revealed that he never scores ever. And oh, women, you know, oh, he has this terrible line about, I always zig when she zags. And then Anne Margaret has to sit there and feel bad for him because he never gets laid. It's so bad. It's so dumb. Well, here's the other thing I like about the movie, besides the fact that Anne Margaret gets to dance maybe three times briefly. She also gets to ride a motorcycle, which is one of her passions. And so there, you get a lot of footage of her on a motorcycle, and it's it's not a stunt rider. That's Anne Margaret, baby, doing her own riding. And I hated it, and I hated it too, because that's the other thing. This movie <laughs> ends with her being kidnapped by Tony, Rick, and he literally, like, he kidnaps her because he's trying to, like, he says he's going to rape her, basically. And it gets to the point where he's chasing her around the room. She gets out of this hotel room. And then she has to tell the cops, like, oh, he's trying to forcibly seduce me. And you're like, <laughs> you're realizing that date rape hasn't been, you know, the word hasn't been coined yet kind of thing. And then he gets arrested. And then it turns into a motorcade. Why? Why does it turn? I understand that Anne Margaret enjoys riding. Because the other good gag in the film is the false ending where Tony is in the cop car racing to get to Kelly to explain the misunderstanding and she's racing to Rick. I can spoil this ending, right? Nobody's going to watch this movie. <laughs> You've got her on a motorcycle and him in a cop car coming two different directions at each other and they totally collide and it's a good stunt. It looks like the motorcycle crashes into the cop car and Anne margaret goes flying turns out that's just a, a gag ending and they say oh no this we would never have the movie end this way and then it has some like them running into each other's arms sort of thing as you'd expect and then a quick cut to Anne margaret dancing again in geometric optical frames triangles and rectangles and, and stuff but i like that false ending gag too particularly since it involved and Margaret doing what she loves best, and that's riding her hog. This movie made me miss Matt Helm and What's New Pussycat. <laughs> and that's not saying uh, very much. You know what? I might take this over What's New Pussycat because it has no ambitions at all. Like, What's New Pussycat thinks it's a good, clever movie, and that makes it even more insufferable. No, this is too patronizing. I do like that Anne Margaret plays Kelly Olson with two S's, and that's Anne Margaret's actual last name, Olson. Ah. Clearly, this movie was written for her. Didn't do her any favors, but. Well, I like that you chose the highbrow sex movie for your kill. Yeah, Trans Europe Express.
the second film written and directed by Alan Robrier, famous literary figure in France, also wrote last year at Marion Bad. In 1966, he made this S&M Bond spoof. And the first time I saw it, I hated it. I didn't get it at all. And I realized that the problem was that I just wasn't paying close enough attention to it. I was watching it with a friend, you know, thinking that this was just an S&M Bond spoof. So we didn't have to pay very close attention and just made no sense at all. It just seemed like a bunch of random stuff happening. Paying attention this time, I love this film. <laughs> Part of the reason that I picked this film was that I thought that, oh, maybe if I watched it again, I would get it this time. And it was nice that it really did work out that way, that I don't actually want to kill this film. It's too late, Bart. It's dead. You killed it, Bart. Can I switch my picks at the end? Can I kill all of your films and, and keep everything <laughs> that I chose for I, this episode? I'm kind of ready to kill all of my films. I mean, no, I'm, I'm keeping how to, I like Millionaire. I like it. But let's talk about this one. Yeah, so it's a really meta film. It starts with Alan Robrier playing himself, like sitting on the train, the Trans-Europe Express, with his script girl, played by his wife, you know, in real life. And he's saying, oh, wouldn't it be great to make a movie that's set on a train where the, this train plays a, a big part? And so he just kind of starts riffing on you know, this drug smuggling story and says, oh, oh, let's get Trintignant to play the main character, Elias. And so then you see Trintignant show up. And, and so as he's riffing on the spy movie, drug cartel cliches, and his script girl with her tape recorder is saying, wait, you just said this happened. This, you can't do that. What if this? And so as he's telling the story and you're seeing the story happen on the screen, it gets sort of rewritten as she's saying, but that, that couldn't happen. That doesn't make any sense. So it's really clever in that way, but it goes darker and deeper than that. And it really is sort of a deconstruction of how artists work. So we have Trintignant and we see him, like he buys this suitcase for his drugs and says to the sales lady, oh, do you have anything with a secret compartment? And just kidding. Like it's a lot of like throwaway jokes in there but he as he's going on his first drug run he stops to get a magazine and, and finds this S&M magazine and is like oh this is great but he buys Express instead and uh, then goes back and steals the the S&M magazine and so he's like sneaking peeks at this while he's on the train to Antwerp to deliver his drugs and sort of more and more when he's in Antwerp he meets this prostitute and he like wants to act out these sort of S&M fantasies. He's really just this pervy guy that's into like sexual violence. And you realize that his sort of obsession, his obsessive kink is distracting him from this drug deal that he's supposed to be making. Like it's, it's this sort of fun thing where he has to meet this person and say this code word about Father Petit Jean, is he, have you seen him? And, and then... You know, this person says, oh, you have to go over there. And it's just sort of like scavenger hunt sort of thing to, for him to get to the like this Frank guy who is his main contact in Antwerp. But clearly this movie and the author who's dictating this story to his script girl doesn't care about this story at all. He just wants to get back to the sex, just wants to get back to his kink. So the author's obsession with just getting to the kinky stuff 
it's an interesting exploration of an artist's process. Like, oh, here's the stuff I really care about. I know I'm supposed to be telling this other story, but, and the sort of obsession with his S&M stuff is what makes Elias eventually fail at his job and not become a successful uh, drug smuggler. But yeah, I, there's so much of the stuff I didn't pick up on at all the first time I saw it. You really have to kind of be paying attention. Like, it's definitely a goofy comedy that's playing with spy movie cliches, but it's also really clever and, and pays off paying close attention to it. I really like that. See, I like this movie, but the thing I didn't understand about this movie was the connection between all of these different worlds. I felt that it didn't really amount to much more than a sort of fake softcore film. <laughs> and you have this like S&M world, you have the drug smuggling world, you have the filmmakers world, and then you have the film. And it didn't fully connect for me, except that I like your connection that you just made about how this is just about the process. That I can definitely see and that this is sort of the distractions from getting there in the end and indulging in the ephemeral and in the moment, which is taking your eye off the prize. And that's basically all life really is at the end of the day. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I think actually that makes me like this movie a little bit more. But I, I don't know. I like this movie. I thought it was interesting and meta. I was going to ask you why you didn't like this movie because this felt a lot like Branded to Kill from your Bootleg Bond episode. Yeah. And that's sort of the first time I saw it, I kind of felt like it was trying to be that sort of thing, but just too random and it just didn't come together. Like I didn't know how the pieces were supposed to fit at all. But maybe you do have to see it a second time to really figure out what it's trying to do because it is an odd film. Well, it's like it's this film smuggled into a film smuggled into a film. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it's bizarre. And like I liked parts of it. I guess that you have to think of sex as a distraction, which I think is not always clear, especially in the, in the world of movies. Like sex usually is sort of important in the world of movies or it's like a total throwaway. So it wasn't clear to me where sex landed in this film other than something that was clearly enjoyable for the character and then for the filmmaker writing the character and then for the filmmaker writing the filmmaker writing the character. <laughs> so there was something that just didn't fully land for me. But thinking about it, it was really interesting. And, and I don't know, it also ended up it kind of this could have been a part of your bootleg Bond episode. Like there's a ton of references to James Bond from that giant to Russia with love poster and in, in the bedroom of the kid. I love when Elias hides out with that waiter kid who he realizes, oh, he doesn't have anything to do with this drug smuggling world, so I'm safe. I don't know who's after me exactly, but I'm safe here. And so he goes into this kid's bedroom, and it's just covered with these Bond posters and Belmondo and, and this, you know all these manly action films. And this kid is just really excited about what he does, like wants to know about this underworld spy stuff that he's into. And Trintignant is kind of getting off on being the sort of manly hero type for this kid. So yeah, just another good gag, uh, another layer there about, you know, he's sort of hiding out with the audience. Like he's escaping from the world of the movie to like sit with the audience watching the movie. And it's super clever. I wish I'd figured that out the first time I saw this movie. 
I really like the sets in general. I love that like shipbuilding dock that they run through. And I love the train. I loved seeing Antwerp and just these different settings that I, you don't, you don't really see. There's like a lot of this sort of like not particularly striking settings. Yeah. <laughs> like nondescript streets and crumbling buildings and things like that. And that was fun. I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the cops, was it, who when they find this woman who's been strangled to death and they say, you know, like, we'll run her article right next to the ad for the S&M Club. (laughs) And it works. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think I need to watch it again. It feels like such a throwaway movie, just sort of half baked and thrown together. But I think it fits together even more than I'm giving it credit for the second time around. I think it's probably pretty tight so i'm watching this and the roundup tonight before i go to bed (laughs) Jeez, yeah i don't know there's something that's like it is this very like new wave nonsense bootleg bond film and yet at the same time that's kind of the brilliance of all the new wave films is that they're just sort of nonsense (laughs) they're like Mm -hmm. spectacular nonsense it's like the good kind of nonsense not the swinger kind of nonsense but even this seems to have more of a point than Breathless does. I mean, I love Breathless, but it's just an homage to the films that Godard loves. But this movie is an homage to movies that Alan Robe Gray clearly hates. And that's part of what makes it so fun. He's not interested in this spy stuff at all. The downfall of the script, he, he can't stay focused on boneheaded manly stuff because he just wants to get to the S&M club with the naked lady spinning around on this pedestal, getting more and more wrapped up in chains. <laughs> right, with like the sound of trains and women having orgasms in the background. <laughs> yeah. And that's what the audience wants. I mean, I'll be honest, what I remembered most clearly about this movie was that very scene. And I think that's intentional. Here's what you really want. Here's what I really want to get to. Here's what you really want to get to. None of this other stuff is important at all. This is really where, like, if I turn off my brain and just go with my guts, where I end up is in a club with naked women all chained up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take that sound bite and blackmail you with it. Um, I can kind of appreciate that, but I'm at the same time, I'm kind of still left a little bit cold by that. You know, it's like, okay, like you and everyone else, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I I, I don't know. The way that he makes these worlds bleed into each other, I kind of wanted them to all interact more. And I think that there could have been a really clever ending to this that just kind of, to me, limps to a close. Yeah. But I like your interpretation of it, and I'm actually more willing to rewatch it now. It makes me want to watch more of Robe Grier. I think most of his movies have to do with S&M. Clearly his personal kink, not just invented for this film. Well, we have to get to last year at Marion Bad at some point, too. How can we have gotten this far into Cinema 60 without tackling that film? Even more than Lawrence of Arabia, I feel like. Never. Last, last, <laughs> last year at Marion Bad is really at the heart of what we're trying to do with this thing. I feel like we've been avoiding all of the big movies for the most part until we are forced to do it by guest. Yeah. <laughs> But I want to talk about it. Or we can't come up with themes that can incorporate these really individual, unique films that aren't like anything else. I think that's probably the main problem. But it seemed like you were coming up with some connections between these movies as we were going through. 
I only had that one with the propaganda signs. You had something about if you walk into a situation with confidence, people will believe you. <laughs> Is that in all of these? <laughs> I mean, that actually might be in all of these, but my crackpot connection for this episode would be that it's war and distraction. And they're, they are now bleeding into each other. So it's this mixture of things that we can't look away from on top of our fluffy escapes. Because even how to steal a million for as fluffy and light as that is, it's still about committing crimes. <laughs> <laughs> but not really. Crimes with no consequence. Art forgery is a big crime. Yeah, but the heist is about a woman stealing from herself and an art detective who, if he gets caught, will just say, well, I'm a detective. I was testing out your system. <laughs> no consequences. <laughs> well, that was 1966. We did it. We kissed it. We married it. And we murdered it. If I had to do it all over again, I would recategorize all the films that I picked. I actually liked all of my films quite a bit. They're all Mary's this episode for me. So you failed. You failed the assignment. <laughs> I failed. And with your movies, I think Once Before I Die is the only one that I wouldn't kill. I mean, I don't blame you. I took some chances and uh, I had to own up to them. <laughs> so I decided that I would make a top 10 of 1966 list to read off at the end of this episode as a capper. I don't know if you did the same. I, I suggested it, but you seemed resistant. I know you're not a list maker like I am. I was resistant because we've done most of those films. And I also feel like I need to watch more. 10 is a big number. I can give you some movies. I will throw some movies out that I think someone should check out from 66. Yeah, but that's the point. I want to hear your list. Uh, topping the list for me, Persona, Ingmar Bergman. One of the most important movies in my life. So it has to be number one. Of your life? Persona? Oh, yeah. I was in a band named Persona. That's how much that movie means really? to me. Yeah. I want to hear that. It was with Greg Morris of Barton Greg's DVD Explosion. <gasps> the Greg? You don't understand how exciting it is for me, having met you from Bart and Greg's DVD Explosion store in Brunswick, Maine, and then eventually having interacted with Greg, the Greg, and the Bart. Highlight of my life. Go on, next movie. <laughs> uh, number two, Modesty Blaze, which I know you know. Of course. Means a lot to me. Number three, Oh Hazard Balthazar, which I believe was in the running for your kill pick because you hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kill that donkey. Number four, Blow Up, Antonioni's Swinging London film. Number five, Masculine Feminine, one of my favorite Godards. Six, Young Torless, we did in our New German Cinema episode. Number seven, I'm slotting the roundup right there. That belongs in my top 10 of 66. The Shooting, I wanted to put in there. It's number eight, one of the two Jack Nicholson Westerns that the recently Deceased Monty Hellman did in 66, is Existential Westerns. Number nine, I put Seconds, because that's got to be in there. And capped it off with Daisies, the crazy Czech New Wave film, which I can't wait to cover soon on the show. I didn't have room for Batman the movie, but that I tried to fit it into my top ten. 
Virginia Woolf doesn't make it? It almost does. If I had gone to 15, it would be in there easily, but it didn't quite make the cut. Wow. I've seen it too many times. I see it for its flaws now. But. So what favorites of yours have we not mentioned yet on this episode? Or we have mentioned. What are your favorites? Well, I think that Seconds would be my favorite because I just, I loved it, as I mentioned earlier. I would throw in King of Hearts, which I like a lot with Alan Bates. And uh, I will throw in a bit of a oddball recommendation, which is Chafed Elbows by Robert Downey. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll say that with an asterisk, just because I find a lot of Robert Downey's movies can be grating. And I say that with awe. (laughs) But Chafed Elbows is really funny. Chafed Elbows is like, I I find really accessible and like laugh out loud funny. And it's considering it's a movie of just like photographs. (laughs) I haven't seen it. I'll check that out. It's pretty good. I don't know. And then you kind of mentioned everything else. I, you know, I I love Who Are You, Polly Magoo. We've done that. I love Blow Up. I don't know. I feel like I have to see more before I come up with a definitive list. Funeral in Berlin. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Andre Rublev. Battle of Algiers. Closely Watched Trains. A lot, a lot of good stuff. Kathy Come Home. Does that count as a movie? That's a, Wasn't that a TV film? Ken it's Lynch? a movie in my book. <laughs> <laughs> OSS 117 Mission to Tokyo. That wasn't even one of the better ones, was it? No. Oh, maybe it was the second best <laughs> one. <laughs> no, it was not a good one. So there are some movies from 1966 that you should put on your watch list if you haven't seen them already. And now we get to play this whole episode out with... Bart's band persona. What year was this band? Give me some brief background information and tell me what you guys were wearing when you were playing this song. I actually had some hippie bell-bottom pants that I would wear on stage. <laughs> Greg would wear his uh, you know, sweaters and collared shirts. Uh, kind of like Jarvis Cocker. I was never in a band. Why are you guys so cool? Was your band any good? It was really good. I thought we were the best band. So play it. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.